Tech Talk. Tech Talk. With Jess Kelly. This, this is News Talk. to this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, I'll chat with Professor Kieran Martin, the founding CEO of the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK. Jewellery designer Chupi Sweetman will join me to talk about the digital tools her business is building to engage with their customers. And of course, we are going to talk about Apple. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. But there is only one place we can start this week, and that is with Apple. They dominated headlines from Monday evening of this week. And that was because of an unfortunate uh, security issue which came to light right before their fancy iPhone event, which took place on Tuesday evening. Uh, Emmett Ryan is the technology editor at the Business Post and joins me now to discuss. Emmett, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It was quite a week. I can tell you my Monday evening was spent mostly texting co-workers, friends and uh, some family update your iPhone. It was basically the WhatsApp I was sending to anyone and everyone. Oh. And uh, then anyone who I figured might be slow to react the next day is like, have you updated your iPhone yet was the next one. So it's it's been a, it's been a busy but fun week, Jess. For anyone who may have missed it and maybe people who aren't iPhone users so didn't necessarily care. Can you just explain what exactly happened and how it all came to light? So it's a very complex one, but I'll keep it as simple as possible, obviously. So there's this company in Israel called NSO Group who create this uh, software which can essentially be used for governments to spy on people's phones. The idea is to help uh, security agencies to do that. Now, that obviously has its own moral questions, but the point that they use, the argument is, you know, counterterrorism, etc. But the problem, of course, with software like this is... isn't just used for those type of phones, can be used for any. And they exploited uh, something in Apple's basic code, on iMessage in particular. And so that meant that uh, Apple realized they had to do something about it. It was first brought to light, if you actually look, at three weeks ago, it was noticed it was an issue in Bahrain, and they thought it was something like this. It's called a zero-click attack, so the key thing for anyone involved is that first word zero, is that you didn't have to do anything on your phone for it to become a problem. So long as it sent you a text and an iMessage, it text can just go through straight away. Uh, it could do stuff. Now, Apple did respond. They basically created this sort of, you know, a bomb shelter type thing where nothing could, or bunker type thing where nothing could leave iMessage unless the user approved it. There was something, but that came after the fact. That was the fix Apple basically put on it. But yeah, obviously Apple best known for, you know, large amounts of, you know, security positivity over the years. So that was more down to the fact that Apple was less targeted than Windows machines because of having fewer users over the years. And as a result, you know, this is probably the first Biggie, biggie. There have been other Apple attacks before, but I suppose this is the first big one in this sort of profile. And obviously, as you were saying at the top there, the timing really couldn't have been worse for them. No. One of the questions that I have been mulling over for the last few days is that, yes, Apple took action and closed this little loophole or the little sort of gap in their armour. But there's nothing to say that there isn't another one out there, is there? Like, as secure as iPhones are, they are still technological devices that are internet-enabled, which means, therefore, they are vulnerable. Yeah, that's basically true. And I suppose it is one of the questions over whether Apple have been a little bit too, you know, cocky about their security because they have such a good rep that they might have sort of, you know, let a few things slip here and there without noticing, to be honest about it. So that's the one concern. I know from talking to experts during the week, the one upside for most users with this particular attack is is that 
it's not a very cost efficient attack as in you're not it's not like say a fishing scam where you use a scattered gun and it costs very little to try and infect everybody with this it's very much about surveillance rather than anything else so the short version of that is you're largely will be targeting individual users uh, obviously that's still worrying from a broader perspective but I, I suppose it's some peace of mind for the end user but there is nothing to say that there aren't more basic attacks for one very way of putting it that can enter the same way and cause similar amounts of damage Mm. So as we mentioned, um, this all happened on Monday evening, dominated the tech headlines across Tuesday. And then at six o'clock Irish time on Tuesday, uh, Tim Cook launched a very beautifully produced, heavily pre-recorded event to showcase new Apple devices. And I don't know what I was expecting because I knew it was going to be pre-recorded, but I had wondered if they would acknowledge it in some way, shape or form. By not acknowledging it, is that kind of true to form from Apple's point of view? It is. And, like, you know, I was talking to my own editor, Richie Oakley, about this right after the event because I figured it was very odd. He didn't. He thought, well, come on, like, you know, they've put a statement out. But I'm thinking, yeah, but Apple don't talk that often as in terms of Tim Cook talking to the masses in public the day after one of their, you know, biggest high profile attacks they've ever had. Or sorry, you know, uh, breaches they've ever had, I suppose, exploits, I suppose, would be the technical term. And he said nothing. Now, obviously, there's a pre-recorded factor to it. But at the same time, it did seem a bit odd because it's the type of thing where you figure you're the boss of this company that's just had a security issue. You should really be leading off the show with saying some sort of, you know, simple placeholder. We're doing everything. I'm even sure that you are safe. Yada, yada. Your security comes first. The normal platitudes to the end user, which don't really mean much. Mm -hmm. But to not even have that was very, very odd, I thought, uh, watching it all together. The event itself went off without a hitch. Like It was glaring to me, but I think there is a sort of a bubble for us as tech journalists where maybe the people who are tuning into this don't necessarily want to hear about the security thing. They just want to see all the new toys. Yeah, like, but um, like the, the only thing with that, Emmett, though, is that he mentioned privacy in the context of one of the strengths of iPhone. You know, and again, we have to acknowledge and accept that this was a pre-recorded event. There's no two ways about that. But I think... If you are going to have privacy as one of your selling points and one of the reasons why or one of the, the, the things that you're saying to customers to choose your brand over another brand, you can't just say it as a plus and not acknowledge them when there's a bit of a snafu. Yeah, and it's not like Apple didn't have the budget or the facilities in order to, to add on something else yeah. in the recording and even have a live bit at the start. Because it's pre-recorded, but it's very much presented as live, as though it's a live event. Like, you know, when you and I were tweeting about it, giving our coverage during the event, it was though it was live. And so, you know, if that's the way Apple's treating the event, they have to treat the news the same way. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, I was very interested to watch the event. Obviously, it's one of the biggest um, product launches of the year. But I, I was kind of disappointed that they didn't just, you know... I, I was just wondering, is this typical Apple arrogance to a certain extent, which I know is probably not a nice thing to say, but they were my... I think it's broader tech sector, to be honest. I think, you know, obviously some companies are better than others, but I'm, we're seeing definitely a move towards companies are trying to basically put security issues behind them at comical speed, like far faster than they really should and far faster than the public would accept. Mm. Uh, you know, Apple probably is the most glaring one we've seen in recent times, but they are, they're far from the only one doing it. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, look, and uh, as I said in one of my questions to you there, like any device that is internet enabled, you have to acknowledge and accept the fact that this kind of stuff could happen. Um, right, so that that's part one of the Apple story. Um, let's talk a little bit about the devices. I was slightly surprised that they started the event 
by unveiling two new versions of the iPad. So the basic version of the iPad is getting a bit of a facelift and then iPad mini is getting a serious boost. Uh, so what did you make of the two iPads? Well, I was really surprised they let off with iPad, Jess. I, just like yourself, I was kind of, oh, they're going with iPad first. That was like my basic reaction. That's weird. <laughs> you know, I figured watch or if there were any AirPods, they'd have gone with those or something basically other than uh, the iPad. Because it's normally an afterthought at these events, but they clearly wanted it front and center. And so, yeah, it was interesting. Like the iPad itself, like, you know, that wouldn't jump out a bit more to me than the Mini. Because I think the Mini has gotten a lot more love from Apple over the years than the, than the good old-fashioned workhorse is the iPad. The price is quite appealing, the uh, power is quite appealing, and the use of center stage, which basically is, if you're using FaceTime, this is one Apple users would know more than non-Apple users, but basically it's a calling system for video calls on Apple. You can place your iPad down and the camera will follow you around the room, basically. Uh, that, I think, is going to appeal to a lot of people, and I wasn't the only one saying this on Twitter by any stretch. A lot of people, experts, journalists, uh, random Apple fans as well, saying they're going to sell a lot of iPads this Christmas, because I think that's this one's going to really appeal. Yeah, the fact that it's 400 quid and it's rammed with tech, it's just kind of a no-brainer. We did a video comparison of the iPad Air versus the iPad Pro 2021, which is that they are both the, the premium models. You can watch that now on YouTube.com. Just search for News Talk and you'll see our video there. But I'm so impressed still with the iPad Air and um, the amount of tech they've crammed into that for the money that I paid for it is very impressive. And so to have elements of that technology and better technology in some instances in the basic iPad for 400 quid is not bad going. Um, you are listening to Tech Talk, Jess Kelly with you here on Newstalk. I'm talking to Emmett Ryan, the technology editor at the Business Post. Um, Emmett, this is often referred to as the iPhone event. It's where they showcase the iPhones. We now have the iPhone 13, the standard one, there's the mini one, there's the Pro and there's the Pro Max and although I'd read all of the rumours and looked at all the leaks and so on, I was still disappointed. It feels like a 12.5 rather than a 13. And by that, I mean, it seems as though these are little tweaks rather than massive leaps in terms of development. Yeah, although I wasn't expecting huge leaps this generation because they had made a big leap with the 12. And Apple rarely make big leaps consecutive. Really, you know, it's like even once every three is doing well for Apple to make big leaps. So I was expecting kind of a 12.5 move. That said, like, I think, like, well, actually, no, before I get to that sad part, like the 13, if you have a 12 and it's like a 12 or 12 mini, there is no reason to go to the 13, to be blunt about it. Like, it's very minor in terms of the in 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 incremental movements. But the 13 uh, Pro and the 13 Pro Max, they really impressed me because uh, one reason, the battery. Uh, like they've really, really souped the batteries in both. The Pro is 1.5 hours longer, they're saying, 2.5 hours longer in the Pro Max. With sizes with, with, with sizes of devices like that, you need to have a battery that can handle it. And Apple seem to have made a big step forward here. But is that enough to push people? Because there are people, and I know many of them, who are diehard Apple fans and anything new that comes out, they'll, they'll want the latest phone, they'll want the latest innovation. Um. I just, I don't know. I, I really struggled to think of anyone to whom I would recommend the new iPhone rather than just getting any of the 12 models, all of which are excellent. I'm using an iPhone 12, the basic one, as my main device at the moment and absolutely love it. I had the 12 Pro Max for a while and it was great. I, I just, I don't think the little bit of battery life is going to be enough to, to push people to upgrade. 
I, 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 I'd agree to a large part there, like in terms of upgrading for sure. But like, if you don't already have an iPhone 12, if you're on a previous generation model and you want to get the larger device, in particular if you're a heavy user, like, you know, so someone like me, to be honest about it, the battery life of the Pro Max would really be a sales point to me if I was jumping from a previous generation and I hadn't already been on a 12 Pro or Pro Max. Now that said, like you're right, I think if I was already on 12 Pro or Pro Max, I'd want a bit more than just the battery increase, even though that would be a key thing for me. Uh, and yeah, it's like, so like that. Yeah, but even though, Emma, even if you had an iPhone 10 and you had the option of upgrading and you could pay a significant amount of money for the 13 or still a decent chunk of cash, but less for the 12, I mean, uh, is it really worth the extra few quid? I think it depends on my paycheck says, to be honest, yes. <laughs> But that's what I mean, though. This is like, and the Pro and the Pro Max are very much aimed at power users, very much focused on people, you know, who want that stunning camera action. And the cameras have been beefed up even further. There's the new cinematic mode, I think it's called. And, you know, everything looks incredible. But for the average user who wants a solid, powerful device, I mean, I don't struggle with the battery life on the iPhone 12 at yeah, all. Yeah, the battery. Uh, but I, that's just going for the average user iPhone 12 is probably your best option is in the regular model. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the iPhone minis, never have been, but that's because I'm a huge guy, <laughs> to be honest about it. Like the, uh, the regular size iPhone is the smallest I can handle. <laughs> so, but like, you know, yeah, no, it's a great phone. And like we were saying, I don't think the 13 is anywhere near enough of a move up. Mm. Uh, certainly if you're coming from an iPhone 10, I will be, and you're wanting to stay at the not pro or pro max models, I'd be saying 12, not 13 in terms of value for money. And Again, in terms of, you know, it depends on, you know, what your budget is, what you're willing to spend on a phone, basically, uh, for going 12 Pro slash Max or 13 Pro slash Max. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it comes down to the end user. But, like, if you're an affluent person, shall we say, I would say it's worthwhile. If you're of moderate income, like the two of us. Uh, How very know. dare you? I earn thousands of euro a second. Um, what about... <laughs> well, you're an influencer, Jess. What can I say, you know? <laughs> Janie Mac. Uh, what about the Apple Watch 7? I have an Apple Watch SE and I love it. I think it was really good value for money. I love the smart smart watch capabilities and the fact that I can, you know, interact pretty much with everything and anything on my phone just from the watch. It's very, very helpful. Um, but... We didn't get pricing for the Watch 7 and we also didn't get a release date for the Watch 7. Which is why I'm keeping the jury somewhat out in that because those are the exact two reasons. Like we haven't got pricing yet. It's going to be interesting because I think we've reached a point now because it's like, you know, even though we're both <clears throat> moderately young people, like it's not that long ago that we were still, while being people who used smartwatches ourselves, saying we're not sure the market's really there mm. to support smartwatches. It is now. Like we have reached a point where people will buy smartwatches, will buy fitness bands as a sort of you know normal thing to do they don't feel it's a luxury anymore and so that's huge obviously for apple the screen size is about 20 percent bigger than the six i believe and it's about like 50 percent bigger than the three which is very impressive in terms of the models but until i really you know get the hands-on with it i'm not going to make much of a judgment especially until i see the price tag yeah that's what i was waiting for too because i thought the way they presented it and there's a friend of ours who is a big apple fan and the first thing he said to me when i saw him on thursday was that he's very excited about the apple watch 7 but the fact that we don't know the pricing for it makes me a little bit skeptical like i'm wondering why that is the case because for everything else we got um release dates or you know availability dates and we got pricing i wonder is it is it to do with the chip shortage or is there something else at play uh i uh, you know i hadn't even thought of the chip shortage i thought maybe it's just kind of case of this one's going to be expensive so we better give it its own launch date remember as well we don't have 
you know, the new series of pods announced yet either. So they don't mm. kind of save the pricing on it until they're doing that announcement. Uh, so that was the one that came to mind for me. And also, of course, the, you know, the, the their home equipment as well, like their spe- smart speaker. We haven't got like, you know, word in next generation there in terms of release or pricing. So they might be thinking maybe bundle the Series 7 price in with the announcement of those. Okay, I didn't think of that either. Yeah, okay. So time will tell. I suppose we will, of course, bring you a full review of Watch 7 when we get it into our tiny hands. Um, the other, <laughs> What did you say? Whenever that may be. Whenever okay. that may be. Um, the other two things that we, I suppose, should acknowledge is that as part of the Watch 7 um, announcement, they were talking about the Apple Fitness Plus, which is a fitness program thing so you can you know follow tutorials in terms of yoga pilates any type of strength training core training all that jazz but then also apple tv home to my beloved ted lasso um they seem to be very much investing in this when it when it first came out there wasn't a whole host to sign up for they had the morning show which is coming back very soon i think it's actually this weekend and i'm very very excited about it and ted lasso is obviously the uh, jewel in the crown for them but it seems like that there's no stopping them and, and the momentum is going to continue to build yeah it's, and it's kind of funny because when I think when I was thinking about sort of the various platforms having their one big selling point with Amazon it's the boys which couldn't be any less different to Ted Lasso even though they both have comedy rooted at their hearts as being its reason to get Prime and the reason to get uh, Apple TV plus is Ted Lasso but you know, obviously, um, uh, Apple are investing a fair bit. Like, we're going to be seeing the Expanse series coming, which has got a huge fan base in terms of people who read the books. And like that, we're talking millions of people there. So that'll get a lot of interest, especially if it's well-received. Like, Apple have a lot riding on this being a successful show because they know it'll bring a lot more people onto the platform who might not necessarily have been Apple users in general before. And But, you know, also at the same time, they've got some real sleepers of shows there. Like, you know, it's one I spoke about with another one of your hosts on News Talk, Koana Flaherty on Splunk, um, that for all mankind, it is an absolutely fantastic show. I would imagine an awful lot of listeners of Tech Talk have never heard of it because it's on Apple TV, and that's the only reason why. But it's very well budgeted, brilliantly produced. And it, well, if it was on any other platform or service, it would be a very, very talked about show. And it's not because it's on Apple. Like Ted Lasso is one of the few that's broken past Apple for how much people talk about it. Like even the morning show, it's got a, an audience, but you don't see people talk about the morning show the way they talk about, you know, the latest Marvel TV show, the way that comes out or whatever on, on Twitter uh, and or the way they talk about Ted Lasso on Twitter, you know, and Apple kind of are hoping to get one or two more of those. And I think the expanse is one they're really riding on to do that for them. Yeah, if you haven't watched Ted Lasso, just stop. Just stop listening to me now and go and watch Ted I Lasso. I got to the end of the show first, then turn it on. I think you should listen to more jazz first. No, like it, it's so good. It is the best, most feel-good slash heartbreaking slash engaging show I think I have seen in all my time. It's just my favourite. But then again, I'm, I kind of say that about everything. Uh, but it's definitely worth your time and it's definitely worth using your free trial to um, to check it out. So I would highly recommend it. Um, so overall, it was a bit of an up and down week for Apple. But of course, they will continue to dominate and get people talking as that's what they're very, very good at. Uh, Emmett Ryan, technology editor at The Business Post. As always, thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, Chupi Sweetman will join me to talk about building tech tools to showcase her jewellery. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. Rate and subscribe. Welcome back to Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Tech Talk at Newstalk.com is the email address if you would like to get in touch or you'll find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Chupi is one of my favourite Irish brands. The company has gone from strength to strength over the last number of years, with customers buying their jewellery right around the world. 
Now, as we know, businesses were forced to adapt and to pivot when the pandemic hit and Chupi was no different. I am delighted to say that the founder and the namesake of the company, Chupi Sweetman, joins me now. Uh, Chupi, you're very welcome back to the show. Your business had a very strong online presence before the pandemic. So were you heavily impacted by the lockdowns or did it present some opportunities for the company? Oh, Jess, I, I think like so many, I someone said to me that as a business, we had to make a critical decision that affected the business every single day for six months in the, in, at the start of the pandemic, particularly. And we really felt that at Chupi. So actually, just as everything started shutting down, we were about to open our first store in New York with all our plans laid. We were going to be opening in a year. And although as a diamond company, we are so digital, there's still that really gorgeous experience of wanting people to walk in store. I actually think our digital marketing manager put it best. She was like, we've been telling people for years, you could buy a diamond ring online without ever seeing it, without ever touching it. And we're going to have to prove that on a global level. Did you, did you, as you know, the, the, the brand uh, ambassador, the, the person that people see, the leader of the company, did you feel pressure uh, to, you know, maintain the business, look after your staff, but also look after your own well-being as well. Because as you said there, there were so many challenges, uh, decisions to be made, unanswered questions that we still don't have the answers to. But did you feel it personally? I think I felt ultimately really lucky to do something I love. So I built Chupi literally out of my spare room. We've now, we're just about our 60th person. So I think about that journey of nearly 10 years of, you know, building something very tiny and very passion based. And actually, in a funny way, the pandemic has crystallized loads of decisions in my life and loads of things we've done. But I remember, you know, it's maybe 15 years ago that I really thought of GP and what it was going to be and thinking, yeah, we're going to grow a global business. We're going to be international. We're going to be based in Ireland. We're going to be hiring the best, the brightest, the most brilliant people who would otherwise go work for big American multinationals. They're going to come and work for us. And we're going to do the best of that, marrying the best of Ireland, that storytelling and technology. And although last year was one of the hardest years possible, it was also amazing because it it proved that we could do it you know all those things we knew so we sell in 67 countries around the world and we sell really beautiful fancy diamond rings and pre-covid people would have been able to come to our store in dublin we have a beautiful store in paris Townhouse, and come in and try them on and we did little pop-ups all over the world and this was the first time we had to be a hundred percent digital although we were digital first to be a hundred percent digital and yeah i think i think overall I just feel really lucky to work in something I love. That's my big, it's my big takeaway. Yeah, no, I think that that uh, resonated with a lot of people. Definitely me as well. I felt the exact same throughout uh, the pandemic. Uh, doing something you love is kind of half the battle. But that that realization, I suppose, that people couldn't go into one of your stores or one of your pop ups, um, led you to this new innovation, which I think is brilliant. Uh, just explain what exactly it is and how it works. Oh, Jess, I'm so unbelievably excited. So we have a phenomenal team. So we do all of our development in-house. We've got a brilliant team. This was led by one of our developers, Donal. And so it's a virtual try-on. So wherever you are in the world, if you're thinking about getting a new ring and it might be an engagement, it might be a wedding, it might be a uh, promotion, it might be celebrating a moment, you can literally take a pick up your phone, go on to chupi.com and try on, virtually try on any of our rings. You take a photo of your hand, you can try on, do you want a diamond? Are you thinking gold? Do you want something like an emerald? And it's just 
amazing it's been such a labor of love for the team they've been working so so bloody hard in it and to see it out in the world is just yeah it's the best one it's a great idea because it I'm quite sentimental about uh, my jewelry and the bits and pieces. Um, my mom, for example, uh, for example, bought me two of your rings for my birthdays and I wear them all the time. And so when I buy a new piece of jewelry, I want to make sure that they that the new piece goes with what I already have. So being able to virtually place it on my finger and ensure that it doesn't look clunky or too much or, you know, overstated on my hand. It's a very clever innovation. Um, in terms, you mentioned it's a labour of love. How long was the process from concept to releasing it into the wild? Oh gosh, I think we've been in development for about 12 months. So we started into March last year. You know, we had our beautiful plan, three-year plan, what was going to be delivered. And we basically took that three-year plan and squashed it and made it happen in a year because we knew so much of the innovation we wanted to deliver, like virtual try-on, were things we have to do. And so it started out being like, yeah, by 22, we'll deliver a virtual try-on service. And then, yeah, this spring it was like, okay, this baby's getting out the door. But I think you've tapped into something so important about jewellery, which is that it is like I am outrageously sentimental about the pieces I have. They're so special because each one's for a moment and, mm -hmm. and jewellery is like nothing else. You're literally wearing a piece of the future. If you ask your mom about her engagement ring, her wedding band and the stories that come with that. So I think we knew from, so social media has been such a hugely important part of growing cheapies. We've about a quarter of a million fans now across all of our channels. And I know from the stories people tell, from the DMs we get of, you know, they have their grandmother's ring, they have a ring they were given for their 21st and they want to see what else is going to work with it. And previously we'd be able to say, come in store. And actually one of the things we launched then in the middle of all the lockdowns was virtual consultations. Mm -hmm. So you can dial in. So we were like, let's make Zoom magical. So you can dial in on Zoom, meet one of our beautiful consultants and they'll talk you through all of the diamonds. We've got really, we've got a full TV studio set up. So you get like a macro lens focused in on the diamonds. And that's been amazing and such fun. We've had such gorgeous global proposals coming from that. But we also knew from that that people really wanted to be able to see how a ring worked with their stack. Mm -hmm. That, that is something that I think is hugely important. The other thing, and I, I kind of forgot about the virtual consultations because one of the reasons um, my mum got me one of the rings that she got was because I think you were in the store of the day and you told the story of the, of the ring and, you know, what it means and what it represents. And so I got the whole story regaled to me the day that, of my birthday. We actually, Chupi and I share the same birthday. There you go, fact fans. We're both Valentine's Day babies. So there you go. Is yes, that... you're a Valentine's baby. Oh my God, how lovely is that? And it's like, well, then, like, that's the sentiment. We're literally born on one of the most romantic, sentimental days of the year. We're totally screwed. Yeah, we're, we're the same. We're the peas in a pod. So I, again, the reason I know that is because my mother told me because you told her in the store. And I think the personality and the personability of the Chupi brand is something that people love and they really relate to. And I think your social media strategy really works because although your team is growing, it still feels like people are engaging with the stories and with the products and with you. That must be a nice feeling from your side of things as well. Uh, I, I feel so lucky. And I think that was um, something that I so wanted to hold as we grew. And as I was saying, we're, we're just about to hit 60 people, but everyone on the team is as passionate about the stories. So we use Slack because we've a, we've a big team and uh, quite a significant percentage of, percentage of us are obviously remote and working from home. And we have a Slack channel just for the stories. So for stories that we, our customers store and our community stories that we don't necessarily share. And oh my God, like you want your faith in humanity restored. It's just such an amazing amazing thing to come in on a Monday 
and read all the gorgeous stories or the people like why they bought something what they're celebrating and that same so I actually I adore being on the shop floor I'm, I'm so lovely I remember meeting your mom and it was such a gorgeous opportunity to talk about it and like find out what she was thinking about getting you and why and if you think about that um I remember meeting the chairman of Bloomingdale's so the former chair of Bloomingdale's and he was very funny very um very American but quite cold and he said to me I can see yeah I can see the business is okay um but you how are you going to scale you <laughs> it made me laugh so much because I think what he was seeing was that Irish love of telling stories and that's what really social media has enabled for us is that ability to scale that conversation and scale the intimacy of of getting to talk about something magical like try on and always we would say like we have quite a few virtual tools so we have um an engagement ring quiz so that you can run through like it's literally like an old cosmopolitan quiz where you kind of you know choose your star sign mm -hmm. and it would run you through all of those and with that we have a, a ring size finder so another virtual tool where you can put your ring down on a phone and it'll tell you what size you need to buy but we would i would always say that they're part of a suite you know that like, you're never going to lose the human touch there we have a phenomenal customer experience team and the, it's so important that that stays in the loop technology is amazing but i would think at gp what makes us special is the marriage of technology and storytelling and people because that's ultimately what we're doing we are in the business of hope and we talk to amazing people and we have amazing people who are part of that story yeah, I think it's a huge, uh, I think it's a huge virtue and I think it's something that sometimes you see brilliant businesses lose that element of humanity and personality as they grow and as they scale. Yeah. Um, you mentioned at the top that you had great plans to open a New York store. W what's what's happening now? Will we get to see Chupi uh, in, in the Big Apple sometime in the near future? Well, we've actually got more ambitious. <laughs> so we've decided that not only will New York do, but we're also going to open West Coast in LA. So we're a little bit um, holding back until everything settles a little bit. Uh, you know, the US is obviously having quite a turbulent time, but ultimately, yeah, the plan is for us is always going to be, there's going to be an element of bricks in what we do. But I would think about our stores like galleries. So quite frequently what we'll find even in Ireland is people will travel from all over Ireland, go to our, our store and then end up buying online later. Because I think retail, um, retail's positioning within what we want now is more like a gallery mm -hmm. you know you walk in you look at the beautiful things but ultimately for most of us we want to shop at home on the sofa you know you want to be you want to take that time to consider and think about it and so that's what we're thinking about when we open in new york and when we open in la and then ultimately london and sydney it's really about providing a beautiful gallery a beautiful space where you can come fall in love with the beautiful diamonds hear their stories you know there's so many things we're doing like lab grown diamonds we're partnering with a lab in california that grow our diamonds for us and to be able to walk in and be part of that feel some of that experience meet our amazing team will always be a really important part of what we do well, Chupi, it is always an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. Coming up next here on News Talk, Professor Kieran Martin will join me to talk about the cyber threats we need to be aware of. Tech Talk. Tech Talk. Rate and subscribe. Welcome back to the final part of this week's Tech Talk. Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. You can find me on Twitter at Jess Kelly NT. Or if you have any questions or comments or you just want to say hi, you can email techtalk at newstalk.com. 
Earlier this week, AIB hosted an online event called Business Leaders Live. The content will be available to watch back online from Monday. But one of the speakers was Professor Kieran Martin, the founding CEO of the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK and professor at the University of Oxford. I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Uh, Kieran, welcome to the show. We have spoken quite a bit on this programme and indeed on the station uh, about cybersecurity, issues relating to cybersecurity, how to be aware and a bit more vigilant when it comes to your activity online and in day-to-day life, I suppose, because everything is now connected. But one big question that often arises um, either from people listening and who text in or email in or just in day-to-day conversation is what exactly are we focusing in on when we talk about cybersecurity? Well, you're dealing with a whole set of technologies that are inherently insecure. It's no one's fault, but the way the internet was built was without security in mind. So there are all sorts of flaws in it. And there are two main groups of people who seek to exploit those. One group of people are hostile nation states. I mean, for Western countries, European countries, that tends to be China after intellectual property and spying Russia after sort of strategic advantage, Iran and North Korea just after after influence and so forth. And they tend to be reasonably sophisticated, although not always. Um, And then there are criminals um, who are the bigger problem for businesses. They're just after money. They're not as sophisticated, but they're well organized. They largely operate outside jurisdictions that we can send the police into. So Russia harbors a lot of um, uh, cyber criminals and so do countries uh, near it. And what they will do is they will just pick away, they might steal data and sell it on the dark web increasingly. And sadly, as we've seen in Ireland very seriously this year, um, they will uh, hold companies to ransom or hold organizations to ransom by locking them out of their uh, systems. And So cyber attacks can cause loss of data, loss of key information that might be very valuable, um, uh, and it can cause sort of disruption that actually leads to potential harm, as we see in things like um, healthcare and uh, fuel supply and so on. Yeah, I think we have absolutely gained a greater understanding of the impact of cyber attacks as a result of the ransomware attack on the HSE. But I'm intrigued to to sort of hone in a little bit in terms uh, or on the point of tackling cyber crime um, we know and as I mentioned at the at the top of the show uh, you were the founding CEO of the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK and one thing that we have come to learn in recent years is that as as adept as adept uh, to technology as we become as consumers, the cyber criminals are always a few steps ahead. So when it comes to you know ensuring systems are secure, uh, policing the cyber space, and then tracking down cyber criminals, what can be done on that front? Well, tracking down we can track them. The problem is, can you disrupt them? And sometimes when you think about cyber crime, it has a lot in common with more traditional forms of crime in terms of the sort of way criminals think, the sort of things they're after and so on. But there's one absolutely key difference, which is that in crime hitherto, uh, even if you conspire and plot outside the sort of jurisdiction that you're attacking, somebody somewhere has to set foot in that jurisdiction in order to commit the act. Uh, In cybercrime, that's not true. You can do it from abroad. You can do it from thousands of miles away. Um, you know, when you look at some of these uh, Russian groups, for example, you can tell what time zone they're working in. You know, they're quieter at certain times of day. Um, and 
given that sometimes, and this is why you know, President Biden has had to raise the harboring of uh, um, large-scale cyber criminality with uh, President Putin, given that there are limitations about what you can do um, uh, in law enforcement terms, uh, occasionally there's some great successes, but there aren't enough of them, you have to really think about your defenses, about the locks you put on the, the locks you put on the door. So that's why, I mean, even things that people might find a bit annoying, like that second factor of authentication, like the text message and so on. The reason that happens is that one very common, cheap and unsophisticated technique that these guys will use is what's called brute force hacking. So they'll just overwhelm uh, your um, entry, um, the entrance to the network with, um, uh, with password spray attempts. And if you don't have a second factor of authentication on, they'll get in. If you do, it's a bit like a vaccine. It doesn't completely eliminate the risk that it will happen, but it seriously reduces it. So that's why, you know, just hardening defenses, particularly from criminals, because the criminals operate at very large scale, but not at high levels of sophistication. That's why that's so important. We have seen and we've spoken about it quite here, uh, quite a lot here on News Talk about the number of phishing attempts, the scam calls, the scam texts and so on. That's on a consumer level. When we take it up a notch and we look at the attacks on organisations, on governments, on systems as a whole, you know, is the objective uh, the same? Is it is it to get money or is there something greater at play? You know, we, we've heard quite a bit about, you know, cyber warfare and so on. Uh, so so what, what is the goal when uh, a hacker or uh, a criminal uh, uh, tackles an organisation, a government or a state body? Well, when a criminal hacks you, the criminal basically wants money. So there's no real negotiation. There's no political objectives. The only negotiation they'll entertain is about is about money. And that's in the case of ransomware. When they steal data, they steal data to sell it. Um, so that's cybercrime. When it's the activities of a nation state, it's a lot more complicated. So China has for well over a decade, probably two decades now, has decided that cyber espionage for valuable things, a pharmaceutical patent, a bit of defense technology, a bit of engineering that's quite cool, but would cost an awful lot to develop. You know, the rapid economic advancement of China has in part been fueled by the large transfer of intellectual property secrets to China through cyber um, hacking. And that's as much a risk to business as it is to government. All countries will want to do digital espionage. Uh, traditionally, that'll just things like foreign ministries you know what's the uh, what's this government up to how do they think about our country and so forth and that damages a country strategically but it can lead to more um uh, it, 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 it can lead to more concerning impacts so for example in 2015 the chinese hacked the database of american government employees got huge amounts of personal data which of course makes them vulnerable to um, cultivation by intelligence services and so forth uh, means that um, uh, the, the, the Chinese, who of course have a tense relationship with the US, know a lot about the sort of people working in the um, in the American government. But also, I think these um, can use cyber intrusions as, um, if you like, uh, chips in a game. So as tensions increase between particular countries, if you've already got an implant down on a country's energy network, that puts you potentially in a better position to exploit and disrupt that uh, should uh, things get worse. What we haven't seen, I don't think we should overplay the cyber war narrative at the moment. Um, firstly, you know, the criminals will just want money and the disruption they cause, whilst venal and awful, is largely accidental. They're not setting out to disrupt healthcare. They're not setting out to disrupt uh, fuel supplies. 
countries will tend most of the time, even the worst countries to act with relative restraint, not because they're good people, but because they will, um, they will not want to escalate conflict. But of course, you then have to, you know, computer networks um, are all interlinked. Uh, computer weapons are called viruses for a reason; they do spread. So, that, um, uh, so that's why there can be dangerous unintended consequences, as 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 we've seen in the past. So, we need to be very, very vigilant. We need to harden the infrastructure of governments and critical national infrastructure. A lot of these conversations, uh, you know, you tend to hear them or you tend to partake in them, just nod along going, God, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. And I think it's only when uh, the individual is impacted or the individual is inconvenienced that they realise the scale and the potential devastation that an attack or a hack could have. Um, do you think that we need to get better at educating the average person when it comes to cybersecurity? The example I always give is, you know, when GDPR was introduced, I think I sat through about 15 briefings on the topic. I could tell you all the principles of GDPR. I could tell you what is and what isn't a breach. But I don't think we've ever had anything like that about cybersecurity. And given the fact that the the frequency of the attacks is on the rise from phishing right on up. Perhaps it's time that we engage in something like that. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. The way we've talked about cybersecurity for most of the previous few decades is mad and it's been quite damaging. For people who sadly like me are over 45, you may remember a 1984 film called War Games starring Matthew Broderick where a teenager operating out of a suburban Chicago bedroom um, guesses a password, hacks the Pentagon, and accidentally starts a nuclear war. That start that or nearly starts a nuclear war. That's that sort of set the tone for the way we talk about cyber threats. It's ridiculous. That's never happened nearly 40 years on. It's not come close to happening. It's not the way cyber attack work. Um, Instead, we need to talk about that. Um, and what that does is it sort of infantilizes people. Mm-hmm. It makes people think, well, this is a big, scary topic with catastrophic consequences. What can someone like me do about it to keep myself and my organization safe? Actually, it's just about the sort of risk that we deal with in our everyday lives. You know, for homeowners and car owners, it's about uh, it's the same way as you think about your home security and your car security for business owners. It's the same as how you think about legal risk, financial risk, HR risk, health and safety risk. Um, what you need to think about is what do I, what's, what services do I need? What matters to me? What information have I got that really, really matters? What can I afford to lose? How would I cope if I was locked out of my system for three days? How would I cope if we lost this um, data set? Is there a particular piece of information, a particular group of people who are really important in this organization? What protections do you put around them? And then when you start thinking like that, you then think, well, what do I need? Well, you probably need up-to-date software. I had a friend, the former head of cybersecurity in the United States, who used to go into companies and say, they'd say to him, uh, we, we need your help on a new cybersecurity strategy. He said, you don't need a new cybersecurity strategy. You need the next version of Windows, not the old one. <laughs> it's really basic stuff like that will take a lot of the problem away a lot of the time. Yeah, I think it is. It's the basic principles of security and, and, and cop on. And, you know, if something arrives in and it looks a bit dodgy, just don't engage with it. I think a lot of us are confident online and we're in an era now where we're in danger of being cocky online and kind of taking our safety for granted. And we, what we're seeing at the moment is an increase of these attacks. And as I said a second ago, people don't really take them seriously until they're impacted by them. But at that point, it's too late. 
would you agree that prevention is better than cure when it comes to cyber attacks? Like we know that you're never going to be 100% safe. But if you do some of those things that you've just mentioned there by ensuring you have two-factor authentication, by ensuring you have the latest security updates and software updates and all the rest, you're in a better position than, you know, leaving yourself wide open. You're in a far better place, and particularly in terms terms of the criminal threat, which is the one that the average person is far more likely to face. You know, the Russians aren't interested in the average Irish person. Um, they'll be interested in some strategic assets in Ireland. And if they target those, then, um, you know, that's quite hard to defend against. But for the average person facing a criminal threat, or the average organization facing a criminal threat, if you make it a bit harder for them, frankly, they may well go away and try um, uh, somewhere else. So prevention is 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 definitely better. And then there's a point, um, you know, about ordinary citizens and, and 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 what they can do in the role of education. And I think there are there are two things here. Let's take these scams you've been talking about that the criminals uh, always do. You know, the fake mm-hmm. uh, text messages and phone calls and 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 and, and all of that and the fake emails. Well. I think there, there's something for government and industry to work together on. So there are ways in which you can um, make it easier for genuine companies to identify themselves. So here in England, where I live at the moment, um, uh, instead of having random text messages from uh, companies uh, saying, you know, I am the post office, I am Vision Express, whatever, we've made it easier for those companies to authenticate. So it flashes up as your phone that it is actually the NHS, it is actually Vision Express, and it, it is actually the post office. Um, so that, so you know, government and industry need to work together to make authentication of genuine communication easier. But from the point of view of the average citizen, there are some things that are worth thinking about. So, for example, um, most reputable companies everywhere in the world, and certainly um, in the two islands here, they'll not ask you by text message to pay money. They just don't do it. Mm-hmm. So if you get a text message that looks pretty good, it's got the right logo and so forth, but it's saying, you know, your parcel's not been delivered, please pay $3.99 uh, by clicking this link. A Mm -hmm. reputable company won't do that. So it's a scam. And, you know, your parcel's not that important or ring them and say, have you really sent this? So just apply that bit of caution. One of the real weaknesses that individuals face is that everybody's busy and, you you know, we can cut corners and so forth. And it's just taking that moment to think and thinking, well, no, people don't operate like this. And applying that bit of caution can take us a long way as well. Absolutely. Caution is key. I think that is some solid advice. Kieran, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I could talk to you for hours, but I won't. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us here on News Talk. Thanks for having me, Jess. And that is all we have time for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. I'll be back with News Talk Breakfast on Monday morning, but do stay tuned here on News Talk because John Fardy has a Sopranos special coming up next on Screen Time.